This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3407 for Tuesday, the 24th of August 2021. Today's show is entitled Software Freedom Podcast and is part of the series podcast recommendations. It is the 190th show of Ken Fellon and is about 57 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is a sample episode of the Free Software Foundation Europe podcast. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. everybody, my name is Ken Fallon, you're listening to another episode of Hacker Public Radio. Today a podcast recommendation for you, a podcast released under the CC by SA license. It is the Free Software Foundation Europe podcast, one that I have not heard or listened to myself, but I thought I'd throw it into the feed as we're short of shows. So if you've got any shows out there, please add them to the queue, that would be awesome. However, having interviewed these guys multiple occasions, I'm sure this is a podcast we will want to be listening to. Information about the webpage, their Opus feed, their MP3 feed, and of course a link to our own sister project, Free Culture Podcasts, now available in Glorious, plain HTML, is available for you in the show notes. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the first episode of the Software Freedom Podcast. Starting with this episode, we will talk once a month with people who have inspiring ideas about software freedom. This podcast is presented to you by the Free Software Foundation Europe. We are a charity that empowers users to control technology. My name is Matthias Kirschner, and I'm the president of the FSFE. And my name is Katharina Nokon. I am a writer and digital rights activist based in Berlin. When we were planning the first episode, we exchanged some ideas for possible guests. And when I heard that the day against DRM will this year take place in October, I directly thought we have to get Cory Doctorow as our first guest and we have to talk with him about digital restriction management. I think there are just very few people that inspired so many people from our community like Cory did. For those listeners who don't know him, Cory Doctorow is a British-Canadian writer and political activist, and he is the co-editor of Boing Boing Net. He is a prominent supporter of the idea of software freedom, and he is fighting for a less restrictive copyright law. His books are published under Creative Commons licenses. The science fiction novels of Cory are all strongly connected to the debates on technology and regulation. What I like about his books is that they address complex issues such as software freedom, copyright, digital restriction management or privacy in an unconventional way. So even someone who has never thought about these topics before, they can follow him. 
And at the same time, as someone who is active in those fields for a long time, you always find interesting ways how to explain these topics better to others. As a privacy activist, my favorite book of Cory is, of course, Little Brother. The book was published in 2008 and tells the story of four teenagers from San Francisco who experience how society is more and more transformed into a surveillance state after a terrorist attack. Together with their friends, these teenagers start an underground campaign for defending civil liberties against the Department of Homeland Security. And I don't want to spoiler you, but uh, I like the end very much. <laughs> what, what do you uh, like most about the book? Definitely the way how Corey described how the protagonists of the story circumvent surveillance technology with very simple hacks. For example, right in the beginning, there is a passage where they explain how to trick an intelligent surveillance camera that can recognize people based on how they walk. They simply put small stones in their shoes in order to change their walking patterns. And by the way, did you know that Edward Snowden had a copy of Little Brother prominently placed in his hotel room in Hong Kong when he did his first interviews for the documentary Citizen 4? I guess this was his way of telling the world... If you want to understand why I did this, please read this book. And you definitely should read this book if you haven't read it already. It's a fantastic book. What's your favorite book? I like Little Brother. I like Homeland. But at the moment, it's Unauthorized Spread, his new book. And in this book, Salima, who's a refugee, she lives in the US. And she's in the situation that her toaster refuses to toast her bread for her one morning. She finds out that the company, the manufacturer of the toaster, they went bankrupt and their servers are down. So the toaster, which before always checked if you can toast this bread or not and which is authorized or not, those servers aren't there anymore. So she's not able to toast the bread, which is authorized, as well as any other toast. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> She doesn't stop there. So she continues to investigate and finds out that there are others with the same problem and that they flashed other software on those toasters and then they could toast any bread they want. So she also does that and enjoys this new freedom. And she helps other people in this building and shows them how they can modify their devices and they all enjoy buying bread they want or baking bread and toasting it. So she's very happy about this development, how she can help others around her to also benefit from modifications there. Later, it turns out that, well, what she did was illegal. They are not allowed to make changes to the software there on those devices in the building. And there are legal threats about this. And I don't want to spoil you too much. So read the book. But this part, it, uh, it reminded me about when we at the FSFE helped others in our Free Your Android campaign to flash software on their mobile phones. So use free software there and get rid of some restrictions they had on their mobile phones before. Seeing how people react towards that and how happy they are with those devices. But on the same hand, also seeing that uh, modifying software on devices is getting harder and harder in some areas. What do you think makes Corey's stories so special? Uh, for me, it's that he, he has those role models in his books, like in Little Brother, you have Marcus and Angela who don't accept that technology just restricts them. They get active themselves and they, they make changes to technology and, and defend civil liberties. And now with unauthorized bread, the special part there is that Salima is a refugee. She's in a bad situation there. 
but she doesn't accept that. She changes things and tries to improve her situation for herself and for others. It's, it's very important that uh, you have such role models for younger people in our society, for underprivileged people in our societies. So that's why I like these books a lot and the characters in there. So I hope you all understand now why we instantly agreed on Cory Doctorow as the perfect guest for the first episode of the Software Freedom Podcast. We are very excited to have him with us today and talk with him about his new book and digital restriction management. Welcome, Cory. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today. So you once said that the idea for your book, Unauthorized Spread, was based on an article you wrote back in 2015 for The Guardian. The title was, If Dishwashers Were iPhones. Can you explain what this article was about? For many years, I'd heard from people to say that it was no real imposition for Apple to have created this walled garden business model, where uh, in order to use a device they sold you, you had to also let them decide which software you could use. And they made all kinds of arguments about why this was legitimate. They said it kept you safe. They said it protected software authors from copyright infringement. They said that it simplified the paradox of choice and so on. And it seemed to me that if all of that was actually true, then they could have just had a little tick box that said, actually, I'd prefer to choose my own software rather than uh, relying on Apple to make that choice for me. And it, it also seemed to be belied by the fact that Apple had um, tightened the screws many times. They had changed the guidelines about what kind of apps you could have. So they had, they had unilaterally decided that some software author's expression was not lawful for inclusion in the app store. You know, we, we had most notoriously someone who'd made an app that kept track of drone strikes uh, that the U.S. government launched and the, specifically the civilian death count from those drone strikes. And Apple had repeatedly excluded that from the App Store. And so it seemed to me that if this was something people really liked, they would have just opted for it. But instead, you know, between the drone strikes and the people who kept trying to create independent software stores and the users who kept trying to drill, jailbreak their phones, it was pretty clear that actually software vendors and software authors and iPhone owners were uh, many of them not very happy with this at all. And the common rejoinder was, well, then why are they in the iPhone ecosystem? They should be choosing a different platform. And that argument all seemed very inadequate to me. And so I thought, you know, there are plenty of other appliances that you could make this argument about. And specifically, dishwashers are a really good example because uh, the most dangerous thing you can do really is eat bad food. Foodborne illness has killed more people than anything else in the history of the world. And certainly there's a lot of people who uh, make their living from coming up with independent dishware designs who then have to contend with copycats who, who clone their, their dishes and so on. And I thought every one of these arguments would apply equally well to dishwashers. And so I wrote this little fake letter from a Steve Jobs-like CEO to uh, his customers explaining why they should stop trying to put non-authorized dishes in their special fancy dishwashers and how these special fancy dishwashers had been exquisitely calibrated to reduce water wastage and ensure that foodborne illnesses were eliminated and to reward people who made dishes and to give them, you know, the um, incentives they needed to continue to innovate in flatware and dishes and so on. And I wrote this essay and what was interesting to me about it at the in the moment 
was just how many iOS users failed to get the joke and instead acted like an affronted religious minority whose uh, sacred texts had just been mocked. And, and then subsequently, how close that rhetoric ended up hewing to Internet of Things device companies. So, you know, if you listen to the rhetoric from the likes of, uh, the, you know, the founder of Juicero, which is the, the company that made the, uh, juice squeezers that use DRM'd fruit or the rhetoric from other IOT companies, you know, they all made essentially those arguments. You know, this, this is Poe's law that satire is indistinguishable from reality and in, in under modern conditions. And so, you know, th- that, turned into unauthorized bread, or at least the proximate instigation for writing unauthorized bread, this idea that there really wasn't any reason, given the Internet of Things, not to turn everything into an iOS-style app store for the clothes that'll wash in your washing machine and the dishes that'll wash in your dishwasher and the bread that will toast in your toaster. This month's Day Against DRM focuses on ebooks. What is the difference between a book and an ebook with DRM? Well, a book is something that actually has a somewhat nebulous definition. If you think back on the history of books, all of the things that we might say would be, um, you know, critical to defining a book actually uh, are not present in some pretty important examples. So, for example, we might say that um, a book has to have a spine. It has to be a codex, uh, that is to say, shaped like a book as we know it today. But, you know, the Torah, which is one of the first and most widely published books in the history of the world, originally was a scroll that didn't have a spine, and we still call it a book. Or we might say that a book needs to have writing or pictures in it, but we have blank books. Or we might say that a book has to cost something, but, you know, the the most widely available books in the world are free, you know, Bibles and copies of the Little Red Book and so on. So book is a pretty expansive category, and certainly electronically, we've expanded the definition of books by blowing up some of the physical constraints that were associated with them. You know, Wikipedia, I think, qualifies as an electronic book. Mm-hmm. And so do, you know, I just downloaded a PDF last week for uh, Dungeons and Dragons game masters who want to ensure that they have consent from their players for situations that might be emotionally difficult for them. And that book was eight pages long. And it's hard to imagine a printed book that's eight pages long. And so we've eliminated the length constraints. We've eliminated some of the media constraints. We have books with moving images and audio and so on. But once you add DRM, something really changes. Because although books are very ancient, and although books are seriously something that is part of our um, cultural heritage and how we identify as a culture. You know, when when you want to show a civilization that's falling apart, you just show pictures of books on fire. You know, anytime someone piles up a bunch of books and sets them on fire, you can be pretty sure that nothing good is going to come of that. But um, a lot of that covenant that goes around books that is that is critical to what we think of when we think of a book is not present in an ebook. So books are older than copyright, and they're also older than commerce, and they're certainly older than the idea of the unitary author. The first books were conglomerates of text by multiple authors bound up together, and the way that you would contribute to authorship was by, you know, copying out some of those passages and then adding some of your own or finding other passages that seem relevant to you and so on. All of those things are are part of the ancient compact that makes books so valuable, so important, uh, so so enduring. But once you add DRM to a book, those things that were historically part of uh, 
the natural life of a book, whether that's having the book read aloud or being able to give away the book or being able to lend the book or being able to tear passages out of a book that offend you, all of those things just disappear. And instead, what you end up with is a book that is regulated first by legal code, usually by a license agreement that's sometimes even longer than the book itself, especially when you factor in the sub-license agreements associated with the e-reader and the operating system and so on. You might end up with a 100,000 words of legalese that you're expected to understand in order to operate the book within the confines of the law. And then you have technical strictures that actually prevent you from deciding which e-reader you're going to read the book on from deciding whether or not you're going to transfer the ownership of that book to your children or give it away to a local school. All of those things that are part of the bargain of the book just just go up in smoke as soon as you add DRM to the book. Um, my feeling is that people would often never accept the same restrictions they accept with their e-books for their normal books. Why do you think this is the case? That was kind of the point of the if dishwashers were iPhones and unauthorized bread, that, you know, we have been put in, in very slowly boiling water, like the, you know, the analogy of the, the frogs in boiling water. And um, we haven't noticed, you know, it's kind of crept up on us that the rights that we value in our books have been have been taken away from us one at a time very slowly. And, you know, this isn't just because we weren't paying attention. It's also because a lot of these problems are a long way away, right? Like what you do with the book at the end of your life is for the average book owner a long way off. And it's also uh, hard to learn from that lesson once you're dead. And so you kind of have to witness, say, your beloved parents' beautifully curated library being vanished in a puff of smoke thanks to a license agreement or because the company that made the DRM server for it decided to take that server down in order for you to learn the lesson and revisit your own choices about what you buy. And, you know, in general, we, we rely not on people learning lessons the hard way a long way off in order to keep us safe. We often ask states to intervene by, say, declaring certain business practices illegal or certain contractual terms to be unenforceable. And neither of those are on our horizon at the moment when it comes to DRM. When Microsoft closed their bookstore, users could not access the books anymore they had bought. Do you know other examples? Yeah, well, Walmart did the same thing, I think, in 2007. But the Federal Trade Commission actually intervened at that point and ordered them to keep the DRM servers running. I don't know if they're they're still up and going. But, you know, Amazon is, what, 20 years old? And I, I'm li literally sitting next to a bookshelf full of books that are four, five, and six times older than that. So the idea that we're going to just rely on Amazon to to never get bored of running its DRM servers or never be, say, financially engineered into bankruptcy, as so many companies have in recent years, including companies that are hundreds of years old, seems completely um, unrealistic. I mean, one, one of the arguments is often that artists cannot make any money uh, without digital restriction management. Now, as an author yourself, what what do we say about this argument? Well, it's very hard to parse that argument out. So so one of the things that makes DRM so pernicious is that it's protected under the law in the EU Article 6 of the 2001 Copyright Directive and in the US Section uh, 1201 of the 1998 Digital Millennium Copyright Act, both prohibit bypassing DRM even for a lawful purpose. 
And whenever, you know, I've been in policy forums, whether that's at WIPO or in Brussels or in Washington, D.C., or in standards bodies like DVB, CPCM, or the broadcast flag body, the, the broadcast protection discussion group. And I've proposed that we make it lawful to bypass DRM for lawful purposes. The answer has been that if we don't maintain the illegality of bypassing DRM, that DRM will be defeated by users. And then I say, but, but isn't DRM the technical countermeasure that stops people from copying it? And when you dig into it, what you find out is that nobody who makes DRM believes that DRM stops users from making copies. What they think is that it allows firms to invoke the law to prohibit otherwise lawful conduct, right? It, it doesn't stop pirates, in other words, but it stops competitors. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to pirate DVDs and watch them on your computer, it's not hard to rip them. But if you want to make a gadget that allows you to, say, watch out-of-region DVDs or to rip them to put them on your computer and you want to sell them in a store, right? If you want to sell a product that does lawful things, the fact that you have to bypass the DRM to do it allows the company to invoke the law to shut you down. So... If you're an author and you think that what DRM is going to do is stop the people who don't want to pay from your books from getting copies of them for free, the very people who make the DRM for those books will tell you that it has no connection with doing that. If you kind of pin them down, you have to wrestle them for a bit, Mm. but then they'll admit it. And sometimes, you know, they'll fall back on this argument that, oh, well, it's uh it's a speed bump, but nobody pretends that speed bumps stop racers, boy racers from racing down the street, or they'll say that it keeps the honest users honest, that when you uh, encounter the DRM and it tells you, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to do that, that if you're honest, you'll go, oh, well, I didn't realize that that was prohibited. But of course, if you're honest, doing things that are lawful is not dishonest. You know, buying a, a DVD or an ebook from one supplier and then watching it on a device made by another supplier is neither dishonest nor unlawful. It's just bypassing the DRM that's unlawful. So this is how Ed Felton, who's now, I believe, with the Federal Trade Commission, used to be at Princeton, came to coin the memorable phrase that keeping an honest user honest is like keeping a tall user tall, that what the honest user is doing is by definition honest. That's what makes them an honest user. And so if your DRM gets in their way, you are prohibiting them from doing something honest. So really what it ends up doing is it ends up locking you, the rights holder, the creator, into the platform of the company. And the company is not on your side, right? Amazon does not exist to enrich creators. Amazon's goal is to minimize its costs everywhere that it's possible to do so and maximize its profits. And you see them doing this relentlessly in every business that they enter. And so while it may be true that Amazon offers some kind of teaser rate for you to do a Kindle original or to allow them to put Kindle DRM on your books or to go into Audible, which is their audiobook platform, which controls 90% of the market and doesn't allow you to opt out of their DRM, that once they have control over that market, they're going to do what every other firm does when they gain control over their suppliers. They're going to squeeze the supplier. And that's you. And so, you know, if if you decide later on that you don't want to be an Audible author because someone else like Google Play or Libro.fm or Downpour is offering you a better price, um, you have to not only pull your books from Amazon, you also have to 
bet that your listeners or your readers will throw away the books that they've bought and buy them again on the new platform or maintain two separate non-interoperable libraries of books. So you effectively increase the switching costs for your customers to follow you to any platform that offers you a better deal. So, you know, it's like if you were a musician and you released all of your records in a format that only Sony devices could play, and then later on Universal offered you a better deal, you would have to trust that your your listeners were willing to throw away all the records you sold them. Well, that is not a good bet, and not many musicians would be in a position to make that demand on their customers. And so over time, you're just making yourself more and more indebted to these big rapacious corporations that only ever want to figure out how to get more money for themselves and less money for you from the creative labor that you do. You know, if someone, as I've said before, someone puts a lock on something that belongs to you and then won't give you the key, that lock is not there for you. That lock is there for them. And, you know, if you go to Amazon and say, I don't want to sell my audiobooks with your DRM anymore, they'll say, go find someone else to carry your audiobooks because we only sell audiobooks that are locked to our platform so that every customer that you bring to us becomes our customer instead of yours. I mean, this sounds really absurd. If you build DRM systems, you have to treat your customer as a potential attacker of your system. What is the impact of DRM on the security of our devices? Yeah, so this is the other issue here. One of the things that arises from this law, Article 6 of the EUCD and and Section 12.1 of the DMCA, is that because they make it both a civil and potentially criminal offense to help people bypass a DRM system, they also have the side effect of making it illegal to publish full security analyses of these products. If you find a defect in a system with DRM in it, and in order to do your proof of concept code and describe the defect so thoroughly that the manufacturer can't deny it, because manufacturers are very, very prone to simply denying it or minimizing it when they're called out on their security mistakes because they don't want to be embarrassed in public and they, they don't want their products' reputations to suffer. So if you want to publish the industry standard for a security report, which is to enumerate the defect and provide proof of concept code so that other people can replicate your work, then you potentially face both criminal and civil liability for revealing those defects. So effectively, you know, although DRM starts off as a means to control customers' behavior by controlling what products competitors can manufacture, it becomes a means for controlling critics as well, for controlling people who discover mistakes that you made in implementing your technology and who want to warn your customers that the device that they have, which inevitably does more than entertain them, right? Inevitably, it has sensors and it has lots of personal identifying information in it and it has ways to access your local network and the other devices on it and so on, that if you want to warn people about the defects in that device, you have to be willing to brave uh, retribution, legal retribution from the company whose products you are criticizing. And, you know, I am enough of a free speech purist to think that telling the truth about defects in products should always be legal. 
but even if you disagree with me and you think that there might be uh, some legitimate restrictions on when defects in products can be revealed so that manufacturers can, uh, you know, uh, patch the bugs before the bugs are made public, say, I think most reasonable people would agree that companies that stand to lose from true reports of defects in their products are not good custodians of that bad news. And one of the things that's happened as a consequence of the, um, of the expansion of DRM into other devices, which, which is itself a consequence of the expansion of software into other devices. Once you have software in a device, you can add DRM to it. Once you add DRM to it, the law gives you the right to stop your competitors from removing that DRM or tampering with that DRM to let your customers get more out of their lawfully acquired property is that the constellation of devices that are also off limits to full security audits keeps on growing, keeps getting bigger and bigger. And that means that we are at an ever greater risk of these security defects festering in these devices until they're so widely exploited that finally the manufacturer can no longer pretend that they don't exist, by which point it's far too late. So we've already seen this happen. The most notorious example was in 2005 when Sony BMG Music shipped 6 million CDs comprising 51 audio titles that had a secret DRM system on them that maliciously and covertly changed your operating system so that it could no longer see certain programs and could no longer terminate them when they were running. Uh, any program that had the string dollar sign SYS dollar sign at the start of its file name would be invisible to both the file and process managers. And then what they did was they wrote anti-CD ripping programs to your computer that would start automatically at, at startup time that started with the string dollar sign SYS dollar sign so that you couldn't run CD ripping programs. The thing is that as soon as this was discovered in the wild, but before it was reported to the general public, as soon as, as independent researchers started to discover this, including independent researchers who made malicious software, malicious software started to emerge that had the same string at the beginning of it, dollar sign SYS dollar sign. <laughs> and so now we had malicious software running on computers that couldn't be detected or shut down by antivirus software. And by the time uh, the researchers who discovered this finally came forward, because there was a three-month delay between the initial discovery and them coming forward, by the time they finally came forward, this uh, malicious software was present on 200,000 government and military networks in the U.S. alone. And so all of those computers had been exposed to this risk. And and all of those users paid for being attacked. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, talk about adding insult to injury. I mean, we sometimes hear this this cry that you can't compete with free. And so, you know, how can a legitimate product compete with the pirate edition? And I think the reality is that however hard it might be to compete with free, it's much harder to compete with free if your product is much worse than the free product. After all, when you pirate your ebooks or movies or games, you get exactly the same game. You just don't get the restrictions. And so that is always going to be a better product than the product that comes with the DRM on it. And some years of fridge or vacuum cleaner and or coffee machine might be connected to the Internet. What rules do we need for the so-called Internet of Things to make sure that technology will empower us instead of restricting us? You know, I think we can define this problem as being in two parts. So the first one is what do we need to get rid of to help people, companies, cooperatives, researchers, and others solve the problem. And the other is what rules should we have 
so that the problems don't come up. And the rules that we should have, they're kind of hard to uh, pin down because these devices will have a wide variety of characteristics and a wide variety of use cases and models. But what we shouldn't do is actually a lot easier um, and also easier to agree on more broadly and therefore easier to implement because, you know, it should be much easier to get consensus on them. So I think at like a, a bare minimum, we should say that it should always be lawful to report defects in devices under every circumstance, that telling the truth, revealing true facts about defects in devices or services should 100% of the time be lawful. I think the second one is that it should always be lawful to, or, or that there should be an absolute defense in law for interoperability and for repair, which is a subcategory of interoperability. So in other words, you should be able to defend yourself against any legal claim by showing that you were making a new product or service that connected to the old product or service to allow the users of that product or service to get more value out of them. So if someone brings a patent claim or a terms of service claim or a cybersecurity claim or tortious interference contractual claim against you, you should be able to say, I made a product that improved the lives of the people who used this aggrieved party's product. I should therefore be immunized from any legal liability and courts should be able to assess that defense. And if it is a bona fide defense, should dismiss any case against you, civil or criminal. And I think that's really, really important because it allows us to imagine a device that has the positive features of a DRM device and whose negative features or whose anti-features get removed by users or by the experts that the users nominate to act on their behalf, whether that's a competing company or an open or free software project or a cooperative or just a, a repair shop or a neighbor who who reconfigures their device for them. So in other words, uh, the problem with Facebook, for example, is not that everyone you know has been made easy to find so that you can have a conversation with them. The problem is that Facebook has hostages, not users. And so if we made it legal to make a new service that went and got all the messages waiting for you on Facebook and filled them in, into this new service so that you could reply to them there without having to be a Facebook user so you could stay in touch with all your old friends. And we immunized you against all the claims that Facebook might bring against you under patent or terms of service or contractual interference or tortious interference or what have you. Then the people who were on Facebook because they liked it could stay there. And the people who were on Facebook because the people they wanted to talk to were stuck there could leave and still stay in touch with their friends. We wouldn't necessarily have to mandate that Facebook follow some kind of interoperability standard, although that might be good too. We could, in addition to whatever floor we put on Facebook's interoperability, make sure that Facebook wasn't allowed to put a ceiling on that interoperability, make sure that Facebook wasn't allowed to say, well, you know, we're adhering to this interoperability standard. We let these three companies that we don't think of as competitors interoperate with us in ways that we don't view as harmful to our bottom line. Therefore, we are interoperable. Instead, you could you could have an unlimited ceiling for interoperability, provided that it was um, in the service of helping users get more out of their experience. And, you know, this is something that we call adversarial interoperability, not just interoperability with cooperation from an existing firm or service, but interoperability despite the objections and bypassing the countermeasures of an existing product or service. Mm -hmm. So adversarial interoperability and uh, an absolute defense 
for adversarial interoperability are both really important, as is being able to tell the truth about defects. Now, in terms of what rules we might impose on firms, there's been a lot of uh, work around this. You know, we've seen things like right to repair legislation. We've seen rules that require firms to hand over clear texts of files for people who have disabilities or people who work in archival or educational contexts in order to allow them to make lawful uses that are enshrined in copyright law to avail themselves of the limitations and exceptions of copyright law. And I think those are important too. I just think that in very concentrated industries, that it's likely that they will figure out ways to game that. And so we have to make sure that these affirmative rights that we grant to people to uh, have certain interoperability uh, standards in the products that they use or consumer rights in the products that they use not become the the maximum, but instead that they remain the minimum that companies are required to do. One question I had is uh, your view about if you think that DRM is mainly a problem for poor people. You know, I think with every technological idea, with every bad technological idea, you can't just roll it out all at once because some people, when they complain, they get listened to, right? Some people's complaints have real social currency. So, you know, things that you do to rich, powerful people are harder to get away with than things that you do to poor people or people who lack power. And so when we have a terrible technological idea, one of the ways that we normalize it and also that we figure out how to make it more palatable to people is we start by imposing it on people who don't have social power. So we start by imposing it on refugees, children, poor people, prisoners, mental patients, immigrants, students, uh, blue-collar workers, gig economy workers. And then once it's been normalized and once the roughest edges have been uh, sanded down, then we roll it out to everybody. I call it the bad technology adoption curve. And, you know, you can see it at work, for example, with, with home automation. So, you know, 20 years ago, if you were eating your dinner and there was a camera over the table watching you eat, it was because you were in a supermax prison. But today it's because you bought Google Home or Apple Home or Amazon Home automation systems. And so we've gone from the most powerless people in our society to the most powerful people in our society in less than a generation. And so I don't think science fiction is a great predictive literature. I think science fiction is a great way to understand the present, but not the future. But if you do want to get a glimpse at what the future likely holds for you, should everything else go on in terms of your technology use, just look at what we're doing to poor people. And then that's what we're going to do to you in 10 or 15 years. Science fiction literature always had a strong impact on how society sees technology. Yet the most successful science fiction books that connect to present developments are dystopian stories. Do we maybe need more positive stories about how technology could improve our lives? You know, I, I am neither a dystopian nor a utopian. I, I, I'm, which is to say, I'm neither a pessimist nor an optimist. Mm -hmm. I think that in the words of Michael Weinberger, when he wrote this classic white paper on uh, copyrights, patents, and 3D printing, this will all be so great if we don't screw it up. I often say that that's what I want written on my tombstone. You know, uh, <laughs> although my wife uh, and I have actually secretly agreed that our, my tombstone is going to say, if a man lies six feet underground, rotting and dead, and his wife isn't there to tell him he's doing it wrong, is he still wrong? And her tombstone is going to say, yes, he is. <laughs> but <laughs> but failing that, my tombstone is going to say, this will all be so great if we don't screw it up. And I think that it is important in science fiction to write about 
how terrible it will be if we screw it up. And it's also important to write about how great it can be if we, if we seize the means of computation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you asked me about my, my new book, Radicalized, which has the story on authorized bread in it. And, you know, those are stories for the most part, not just about the dystopian notion of having your technology do to you instead of doing for you, but they're also about the real marvel and glory of being in charge of your own technology, of being able to decide what the technology does, uh, of being able to reconfigure it to do what you want when you want it to. And, you know, I think that both of those are really important. And I think that it's a mistake to say that just because just because a, a story has uh, dystopian themes or depicts the dystopian nature of having the technology work against you instead of on your behalf, that therefore the story is dystopian. What really matters is what the characters do in the face of that. If they go on to seize control, then that's rather a utopian story. And so I, I'm of the view that there's nothing wrong with having a story whose starting premise is that the technology's control is taken away from us, particularly if it's also a story about how wonderful it is once you reverse that situation. Thank you very much, Corey, for being with us today for this uh, first episode. Okay. Thank you. Vielen Dank. Give my love to everybody there. Thanks for the work you're doing. Thank you for your time. All right. Bye. <laughs> bye bye. If you want to get active on this topic, you can support the Day Against DRM, which takes place every year. This campaign is organized by the Free Software Foundation, our sister organization based in the US. If you want to receive more information, please visit defectivebydesign.org. On this website, you also find a list of DRM-free platforms for books, videos, and audio files. This was the first episode of the Software Freedom Podcast. If you like this episode, please recommend it to your friends and subscribe to make sure you also get the next episode. This podcast is presented to you by the Free Software Foundation Europe. We are a charity that works on promoting software freedom. If you like our work, please consider supporting us with a donation. You find more information on my.fsfe.org slash donate. Thanks for listening to the Software Freedom Podcast. Looking forward to next month. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.